With huge pressure to innovate, a lot of companies just aren't prepared for the disruption, the challenges, and the legal risks associated with technology. I'm Upton Saidi, and I'm a technology journalist. In this series, with the help of some expert guests, I'm going to be exploring how to succeed when technology fails. Today's episode is all about future tech. So there's a vision of the future that looks a lot like a movie, a Matrix-style landscape where humans are mostly plugged into devices and living in the virtual world. When people talk about the metaverse, that's kind of what they mean, an immersive online space where you put on your VR headset and exist as an avatar. You meet other people, virtually of course, go to concerts, go shopping, and walk past virtual advertising billboards. And it might go mainstream and you could find yourself in the metaverse, whether you're ready or not. Bill Gates is predicting that remote work meetings will be held in the metaverse within three years. Big brands are falling over themselves to get into this space. And how about the physical world of the future? What does that look like? There's a lot of innovation taking place right now that can give us a clue. The private sector is increasingly looking skyward to space, and consumers are demanding better environmental credentials for their tech. So what does all of this mean for business? In this episode, we'll game out the legal and practical stumbling blocks that companies and consumers might face with some of the technologies of the future, and ask our expert lawyers how businesses can make sure they're staying on top of the risks. First, let me introduce to you our two guests today. Nathan Searle is a partner in Hogan Level's international arbitration practice, and Phoebe Wilkinson is a partner in the litigation practice. Thanks for joining me today. Lovely to be with you. Pleasure to be with you, Upton. Nathan, let's start in the virtual world. The metaverse is getting a lot of press at the moment, but let's start simple. What is it and how does it work practically? So practically, it's an online marketplace. It's somewhere where you can go or your virtual avatar can go. You can move through the environment. You can interact with other users. You can interact with companies. You can buy stuff. You can build stuff. You can sell stuff. And talk to me about what kind of stuff that people want to buy in the metaverse, right? I mean, if I am used to buying physical things, which the whole world is, what value does virtual stuff really give me? Well, that's a, a really interesting question. But you can buy and interact with a whole range of products. You can even buy land in the metaverse. And that is one of the basic building blocks. So you've got this virtual land that you can buy, and then you can put stuff on there. And what stuff you put on there, well, your imagination can be the limit. We're seeing a lot of companies buy real estate in the metaverse, everyone from PwC to HSBC, Atari, and even alcohol brands. Molson Coors constructed the Meta Light Bar just in time for the Super Bowl. So why are companies so keen to get involved? They're keen to get involved because you can interact with a global client base. Anyone can dial into the metaverse you know, from their living room, from their bedroom. What better way to get your products right into someone's home? And it's not just someone's home just in the road or the city down the road. It's anywhere on the globe where you can access the metaverse via an internet service provider. So you don't think this is just for PR and hype? You think these companies are actually preparing to operate in the metaverse? That's right. And we're seeing them you know, making their initial investment. And uh, those who get this right, 
yeah, have the ability to unlock huge potential in terms of a global marketplace without borders. So I'm curious, what are some of the rules in, in the metaverse? Are people liable if things go wrong? And maybe you can walk us through a couple of examples. So like any new jurisdiction, yeah, there's an overall legal framework. And where does that framework start? Well, that's the terms of use. It's that agreement between the metaverse operator uh, and then each of the users. And where you've got a, a huge number of users, that can mean that you know, they have both rights individually against the operator, but also potentially grouping together um, as, as classes and seeking to exercise rights as a group. So when we talk about some of the legal frameworks, um, like let's talk about a contract between a metaverse operator and each of the user. I think we're already seeing some unprecedented scenarios come to place. Can you talk us through a little bit of that? So the terms of use may state which law they're governed by, or they may have that left as a gap. And so when you've got avatars or people entering into these uh, agreements, you could have users in different countries. And when you're buying a piece of virtual land, well, where does that land sit? It's easy to know if I'm buying a piece of land in Australia. Well, yeah, I know where it, where it sits, but when I'm buying it in the metaverse, where, where are these contracts being performed? And so that can have an impact on what the governing law is. But once you start getting into user-to-user -user contracts, you're actually getting layers of contract because both the users are bound by the terms of, of use and then they're contracting within the metaverse to buy or sell or, or provide this product. And then, of course, the person who's producted or creates or generates a product uh, might then sell it to one user who then sells it onto uh, a further user. So you've got you know, potential for chains of contracts. Of course, when you're sitting at your your desk or in your living room in the metaverse, you're not necessarily thinking through what you know, are the legal consequences. And particularly, if the terms of use say, well, it's governed by English law, for example, you could be entering into an English law contract when you're in you know, Tanzania and, and New York City. And those are some of the, you know, some of the basic building blocks of the, the metaverse that give rise to a variety of legal issues. One thing I was going to say as a, as a parent and a lawyer that I find to be one of the big challenging questions that will come up is in many places, you know, minors don't have the ability to enter into a contract legally. They wouldn't necessarily be held to a standard um, that's in the contract. So what will that mean? How will that all be worked out going forward if you have a minor who has signed or agreed to the terms of conditions, but down the road there's an issue. Is that binding? I, I think it leads to a whole host of questions. You know, in Nathan's and my world of disputes, disruption is a key driver of new legal principles. And there is no question that the metaverse is going to disrupt for sure legal regimes calling into really everyone's mind, how is this all going to be going forward? And I, I see that disruption as being a source of enormous change in terms of legal issues, If you, especially if you think who the primary users are often of the metaverse, which is children. Absolutely. And I want to talk about, you know, over the past year or two, we've seen the likes of some big tech companies actually go go down. 
for for whatever reason, what what happens then? What happens if a system goes down or a user gets kicked out of the metaverse? Do we have kind of a precedent for that? No, that's, I think, going to be an evolving uh, area. Obviously, the terms of use uh, may say something, but yeah, what happens if on the the day that you're to transact, you're kicked out of the the metaversal or simply you can't connect. I think it's an area we're going to see increasing litigation and uh, arbitration over these terms of use and whether I can stay in the the, the metaverse universe or not. And what, what happens when um, it goes down or what we're also seeing is what we might call interoperability or connectivity between different metaverses. Will you be able to take an asset from one metaverse you know, into another? What happens if, as you say, one one shuts down? How do you extract the value? And we're seeing things like um, cryptocurrency and and tokens that are um, are almost becoming a currency or a way of connecting between the different metaverses. So I want to take off the lawyer hats for just a second. Do either of you have an avatar yet? Not me. <laughs> no, I'm not there yet. Not yet, but we are seeing it uh, in arbitrations uh, in, in a testing phase. I have seen a, a virtual meeting room or virtual arbitration room where people have been trying out the technology. So it's not far away. Wow. Wow. Actually, so it's, it's actually coming. You're already seeing it come in, into play quite fascinating. When we talk about the metaverse, you know, we've talked a lot about some of the implications in the actual metaverse. But what about the actual going back to the physical world, there could actually be some some concerns around physical safety, for instance, safety issues about wearing equipment. Phoebe, can you weigh in on that a bit? Upton, that will that will certainly be a concern and something that people watch. I think there are issues even just physically wearing the headset where you will potentially hear people complaining of headaches or other physical manifestations of even wearing the equipment. There are hazardous materials that are in the products when you take them apart, nickel, mercury, lead. And so if the e-cycling of the e-waste is not done properly and regulated, you're in a situation where there's physical safety to people who are handling the e-waste after the fact. So I think you're going to see this issue both speak to actual use of the product as it's intended, but also the dangers that are associated with handling what's in the electronics when you're in the e-cycling phase of life of that product. Phoebe, let's talk about tech and sustainability. What are some of the things that companies should be thinking about when it comes to tech like electric cars? And what are the risks? It's an excellent question, Upton. As I said before, with disruption comes new legal regimes. And I think anytime you have technology that speaks to new areas, the technology comes first, followed by the disruption, the law catches up. But I think one of the, the key issues is everything we're talking about, right? Avatars, laptops, the mouse that you use on your computer. There's an explosion of electronic equipment that comes with this new technology. And even traditional everyday appliances are now considered electronics. Your refrigerator is really now a piece of electronics. Your washer is a piece of electronics. So with all of that, 
has come a huge new issue of e-cycling and e-waste. And that applies to electric cars, that applies to the, the hardware that we're all talking about, the, the avatar, the phones we all use, which now everyone tends to replace on a much faster basis than they used to. And it has meant a very significant new issue that the world has to deal with because there are a lot of health and safety issues associated with e-waste and e-cycling. Yeah, and China, for example, said it will not take any more waste. Is that something that you're watching? We are. For many years, China accepted a lot of waste from the world. China obviously generated a lot of the waste because they were actually doing the manufacturing. They did say a few years ago that they will no longer accept the importation of e-waste. And that has meant there's a lot of e-waste and we're trying to figure out the world where it should go. Unfortunately, it tends to go to underdeveloped countries where there are a lot of people who are very, very impoverished. And it is going to those countries. It is typically not regulated in terms of the e-waste and the e-cycling. And we're seeing some very significant concerns articulated by world bodies who are saying we have to address this situation because it is creating significant risk, typically for women and children who are the least able to be advocates for themselves or be protected in many of these countries. So it's a very significant issue and one that is only growing. So my final question to both of you is this. As we look at the rise in technology, whether it's sustainable tech or the buying a plot of land or a home in the metaverse, things are obviously changing. So how can companies keep up with all the changes and what are the big questions that they should be asking themselves? What we're seeing is those um, companies that are getting out there ahead of the curve, engaging with the regulators around their new products, also adopting a risk-based approach. So look, looking at jurisdictions where the regulators are active and the, the laws are, are coming through quite quickly and progressively, and then using those as a baseline uh, against which to assess some of the other perhaps slow-moving countries in order to ensure that you are complying with the law uh, everywhere and you're not exposing yourself to unnecessary risks. It's about having a system and a strategy in place to identify these risks and get out ahead of them. It's very true. And because of the disruption and things moving so quickly, you do need to have a risk-based approach. And, you know, Nathan and we do a tremendous amount of risk counseling for clients, linking them up to the right people who know how to guide the client through this. So you draft a terms of conditions uh, for your website that where you're thinking about where are, where are the risks, where, what are the worst jurisdictions, let's draft for the worst case scenario. In terms of environmental compliance issues, Typically, we tell clients, let's identify the most onerous, difficult jurisdiction. If you want a program that is robust, we'll build it around the worst case scenario. We recently had a situation with a client who was doing an analysis in terms of data privacy to be compliant, and four sets of new laws came out that we said, by the way, these four laws just got issued in these jurisdictions. We need to have a look. So it is evolving extremely quickly. And as, as Nathan noted, the best way for companies to think about this is to think about it from a risk mitigation strategy, 
link yourself up with folks that can give you real-time current information to be at the forefront of the change. And typically, we say to the companies that want to be the most protected, pick the worst jurisdiction or the one with the most difficult laws and build your program around that concept. Thank you both for joining us today. For more information on the issues we've talked about, including the litigation landscape report, head to our website, hoganlevels.com. You can also get in touch with Nathan, Phoebe, or your Hogan Levels contact. Nathan, Phoebe, thanks so much. Thanks, Upton. Thanks, Upton.